بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والصلاة والسلام على الشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين ولا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله العلي العظيم. That's an interesting inroad what was just said into what I wanted to talk about talking to people. That, for instance, introduction was actually for non-Muslims and not for Muslims. And the reason for that is because non-Muslims have a different criteria that Muslims have. For instance, if I was talking to non-Muslims, a person is given credibility based on his prominence in a society. Often for Muslims, a person loses credibility based on his prominence in a society. So these are very different ways of looking at a person. If somebody in the West met with a leader of a state, that would be seen as often a sign of credibility. In the Muslim world, it's actually often seen as a loss of credibility. And that is very important in understanding the psychology of the people that you're dealing with. The Prophet Muhammad said, the best of kings are those who are at the doors of scholars. And the worst of scholars are those who are at the doors of kings. So it's actually, in the Islamic tradition, it's seen as a negative and not a plus. And that is, again, relates to criteria and how we assess things. So that was uh, kind of an interesting side note. But what I wanted to talk about today was looking at two aspects of da'wah. Da'wah is misunderstood by many Muslims to include Muslims. The idea that we make da'wah to Muslims. There is no such thing as da'wah to Muslims if we use da'wah in the technical term that scholars use it in terms of calling people to Islam. Because Muslims are already Muslim, so they don't need to be invited to Islam. The term that is used for dealing with Muslims who are wayward and need to be reminded, and that includes the majority of us, is called Amr bin Ma'ruf and Nahi anil Munkar. It is commanding to good and forbidding evil or forbidding what is wrong. And so that is what a Muslim does with another Muslim. That has conditions. And that's what Sheikh Yusuf was talking about, this idea of knowledge before you actually engage in da'wah or in Amr bin Ma'ruf wa Nahi anil Munkar, in calling people to Islam and in commanding to what's right and forbidding what's wrong. Because there are many people who actually don't know what's right and what's wrong. That is actually a level of knowledge in Islam to be able to discern between right and wrong. And then added an added nuance to that is what is called in Western civilization situational ethics. Because there are things that are wrong in certain situations, they are not wrong in other situations. So we are not Kantian, if people are Kantian, if people have studied Western philosophy, they know about something called the categorical imperative, which is an ethical theory uh, in Western society that to tell a lie is always wrong and in any situation. Well, that is not true in Islam. There are actually times when it's not only permissible to prevaricate, it's actually considered an obligation. And that would be, for instance, if a tyrant is trying to unjustly kill or persecute somebody, it's actually permitted for you to divert that tyrant away from that innocent person through a lie. Uh, and there are many examples of that that can be looked at in the books of fiqh. 
But generally, lying is a heinous wrong in Islam. Now, one of the things about lying is it relates very much to da'wah. The Muslims, uh, in many ways, in the, well, before I get into that, what I want to talk about is two aspects of da'wah. Because I would say in many ways da'wah does apply to Muslims today. And the reason I would say that, there are, there are many Muslims that have deviated so far from Islam that even at the, at the basic rudimentary beliefs of Islam that make you a Muslim have been lost on many Muslims. So that in a more traditional period of time, many Muslims would actually be considered non-Muslims because of erroneous beliefs that they hold. Now, time is always taken into consideration, and that's something very important in the Sharia. The Prophet ﷺ, during his early period, the way that he treated people was very different from his later period, not because he changed, but because the level of consciousness and awareness of the people had changed. So for instance, there are many hadiths in which the Prophet ﷺ excused the most gross breaches of courtesy. During the time of the Prophet ﷺ, there was somebody who yanked his coat. He was a Bedouin man. He literally yanked his coat. The Prophet ﷺ was light-skinned. And, and because of that, a red mark appeared on his neck. And the Prophet ﷺ smiled and dealt with this man in a very beautiful way. Partly because he understood he was a, a Bedouin, and Bedouin are very rough in their behavior, but partly because people are ignorant. And when people are ignorant, there's a different level of understanding. During the time of Imam Malik, somebody once had a very gross breach of adab, or courtesy, in his gathering. And Imam Malik said something to him, indicating that, and the man came back with an even grosser breach of courtesy. At that point, a group of Malik's teachers grabbed this man's turban, and they used to wear the what's called a technique. They wore a, a turban under the neck and, and it had two, what's called the abba, which is the tails of the turban. They grabbed this man's turban and dragged him out of the majlis or the gathering of Imam Malik. Now, obviously in this age, that would be unacceptable. But at the time of Imam Malik, the level of knowledge in Medina was so high that this was seen as somebody, for instance, in, in this gathering, if somebody starts screaming or shouting uh, and became uh, violent, you would want people to come in and control that person, remove them from the auditorium. Well, that's because that's our level of tolerance. As a society becomes more rarefied, the levels of tolerance in terms of breaches of courtesy become lowered which is a sign, actually, of a high civilization when breaches of courtesy are rejected. And that's why if you look at traditional Japanese culture, very slight breaches of courtesy uh, would have been so gross and so unacceptable that people would actually have to leave the town or the village that it occurred in. And this also occurred in, in the Arabian Peninsula. There's a famous story about a man who once had such a gross breach of adab that he left the town that he was in. And he missed his town after about 30 years of being away. He missed it for so long, he decided to come back and he met a young man at the town. The man said, where are you from? He said, I'm actually from here, but I moved away 40 years ago. And the man said, oh, were you here at the time when so-and-so did such-and-such? And it was his breach. <laughs> 
So in those type cultures, they used to actually, things like that were the earmarks of the year. So Muslims today have distanced themselves so far from some basic teachings that to apply the same hadith that we find in the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ that relate to a later time now would be a gross injustice. And this is something that takes knowledge and discernment of understanding the situation, the level of the person that you're talking to, of who's in front of you. There are many people, they have tape recorders and they have pre-recorded messages that they're going to deliver. It doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter what your level of education is. This person who's a da'i will come and click, turn on the cassette that's in his brain, and then the same thing comes out. Then he's, he wonders why he keeps getting the same responses from people. Because when you're dealing with a human being, you're dealing with a very complicated creature. Each human being is bringing with him or her an entire history. They're bringing with them their childhood. They're bringing with them their relationships with their parents, which is the first authoritarian experience. And some people have very traumatic experiences with their parents, which leads to a certain response to any type of authority that they see in the world. There are other people that had very dysfunctional family situations with uh, siblings, with their uncles, with their aunts. There are people that are victims of incest. There are people that are victims of child abuse. There are people that witnessed uh, their parents constantly fighting. There are people that were abandoned by their father. There are children that have no legitimacy. They don't even know who their father is, which is another type of trauma. There are people that were raised orphans. So each one of these human beings that you see out there has an entire biography. And if you don't take that into consideration when you're looking at a person, that this is a unique human being that has a unique experience of the world. And while as human beings we have a common experience in the world uh, in terms of being human, of being uh, conscious, we have very particular experiences that give each one of us a nuanced perspective on the world. There are some people that the world has been a wonderful place since they got into it. There was a cartoon that had three fish. One was a little fish about to be swallowed by a middle fish. And then there was a big giant fish about to be swallowed, uh, swallow the middle fish. The little fish says in this cartoon, life is terrible. The middle fish says, it's not so bad. And the big fish is saying, life is great. So people have very different experiences. If you take, uh, for instance, in this culture, minorities that uh, grow up in certain areas in the culture, they have a completely different set of experience of America. If you grow up, for instance, in Harlem or in East Oakland or in the barrio down in Los Angeles, you will have a very different experience of America than if you grew up in Los Gatos or in the Oakland Hills. If you went to a public school, you will have a very different experience of America than if you went to a private school. If you went to a state university, you will have a different experience of America than if you went to Yale or Harvard. So we're dealing with many, many different experiences of the world when we look at people. The Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, when he looked at people, he saw who he was looking at. Mus'ab ibn Umayr, 
who actually was sent to Medina to, to in a sense, prepare Medina for the coming of the Prophet ﷺ, learned about everybody in that city. When the Prophet ﷺ came, he sat next to him, and when people would come into his majlis, he would whisper into his ear, this is so-and-so, he's got this position, he's the... And he would inform the Prophet of who this man was, because the Prophet ﷺ did not talk to the Sayyid of a people, the nobleman of a person in the way that he talked to another person. And this is not that he treated people differently. But he said, Umirtu an unazirannas manazirhum. I was commanded to observe the protocols of people. And every people have a protocol. So when you go into, for instance, a judge, contempt of court in a judge, you see, being held in contempt is not the same as if you're in a gathering of a group of people and you start raising your voice because you want to make a point. In a court, you cannot raise your voice like that because the judge will not tolerate it. Why? Because he represents something. And if you don't respect what he represents, then he will fine you, he'll hold you in contempt of court, he'll have you arrested if he has to. And that is, the, every society has these protocols. And if they're not understood and observed, then you're doing a misjustice to the people that you're dealing with. Some of them are fine, Islam accepts them, and other ones that if people became Muslims, then they would throw them out the window. Because not everything is appropriate, but those things that become part of a culture are understood by those people to have a certain import. And if they're not honored by other people, they see it as a disrespect. And that's why a stranger is often excused for certain things. When I was in West Africa, one of the things that I did not know is that if you're married to somebody's daughter, you never eat or drink in the presence of their parents, which is actually a jahadi. It was a pre-Islamic tradition, but the Arabs of West Africa still have that tradition. And I was on a journey once with a man, and we were going to the house of his father-in-law. He said to me, I'm really thirsty. And I agreed. And when we got into the house, his father-in-law was there, and then they brought some milk, and I, I handed it to him. And he said, no, I don't want any. I'm not thirsty. I said, well, you just told me you were thirsty. And he said, no, 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 I'm not thirsty. I said, Bismillah, just drink. You know, he said, no, no, no. And then I heard the women in the back giggling. There was women in, in the back that started giggling, and I didn't know what was going on. So I just took it and I drank it. And he explained to me later, you know, in our culture, we don't do this. So that was a breach of adab or courtesy in that culture that I was not taken to account for. But had he taken that, it would have been considered that he was being rude and disrespectful. There's people that think that uh, there's immigrants that come to this country that think that Americans have no traditions, that they have no culture, that they have no civilization, and, and they're wrong. They're simply wrong. There are many levels of society in America, and you might have been introduced into one or two or three, but this culture has many levels. You can get into the most rarefied circles, and there's a completely different set of protocol than you will find in, say, a more popular culture, which can obviously be very crude. And popular culture in most uh, civilizations has been crude. I mean, it's a testimony to faith-based cultures that often the popular culture is not a crude culture. It's an indication that real virtue and values have permeated a society so that people are living 
at a certain level. So in dealing, when we look at individuals, we have to look at all those backgrounds. There are, for instance, I have been in Saudi Arabia in houses where the brother of someone who is married to a woman has never seen his brother's wife's face because it would be considered a breach of uh, courtesy. And that's in the eastern province. And I've been in those houses and I've never seen any of the women. I've been in Hijazi houses where the women are dressed like American women and they view no shame or no... It's, there's nothing wrong with sitting as far as they're concerned. And if you actually told them that something was wrong, they would be surprised because they weren't even raised like that. And I once was in a, having dinner and there were some Saudi people there and I said, you know, in Saudi Arabia, I'm, I've always eaten on the floor. And this person said to me, do people eat on the floor in Saudi Arabia? And she grew up her entire life in Saudi Arabia. And she was not joking but she had been in a certain society that simply that was what the Bedouin did. And she viewed it that th those are Bedouin people. I said, no, city people. City people that eat on the floor? And there are people in this country that you will find the same. They would be shocked to find out certain types of behavior in certain areas. So this is something very interesting about all of these multiple levels of existence that are happening on the same planet at the same time. And so, therefore, in speaking to people, you have to recognize, you have to determine what type of background, educational background. You have to determine ethnic background. The Prophet ﷺ was concerned about tribes, about knowing which tribe the person came from. If he was a Kelbi or a Harbi, it was different in Arabia than being from the Hawazim or from the Quraysh or from Bani Tamim. And that is true in every culture. You will always have those demarcations. It's part of human nature. So, in looking at how we're dealing with da'wah in terms of Muslims and inviting Muslims back to Islam, we have to understand that there are many, many people that are, have been so distanced from Islam that you cannot expect them. If you meet a woman now in America who grew up, for instance, in a house, she might be an Afghani or a Pakistani or an Egyptian woman or Palestinian, but she's grown up in a very secular house. But she knows she's Muslim. And if you treat her as if, why aren't you wearing a hijab? You know, why don't you cover your hair? Don't you know that's haram? There's a man that came to the Prophet of Allah, a Muslim, and gave him as a gift. This is in Sahih Muslim. Gave him as a gift a bottle of wine. That was his present to the Prophet ﷺ. And the Prophet ﷺ said, didn't you know that Allah prohibited wine? He said, لا يا رسول الله. I didn't know that. And then he whispered to the man who came with him, his servant. And he said, what did you just tell him? He said, I told him to go sell it. And the Prophet ﷺ said, The one that prohibited its drinking also prohibited its selling. And he said, oh, in that case, go dump it out. Now, the Prophet ﷺ didn't say to him, what's wrong with you? How dare you bring me a bottle of wine as a gift? I mean, you might invite a very secularized Muslim to your house and he comes with a bottle of wine as a gift. And there's Muslims that would say, you know, go to hell or something and slam the door on them. That's not what the Prophet ﷺ did. That's not how he treated that person because he was looking at the level of the person's knowledge and consciousness. 
Because people are on an evolutionary journey. We believe in evolution in a different way than, for instance, people in this culture associate evolution with moving from lower order creatures to higher order. But the evolution of the soul is something very real. There are people at different levels. The Arabs say that Hasanat al-Abrar, Sayyat al-Muqarrabin, the good actions of righteous people are the bad actions of people in the divine presence. Because the evolution is different. So somebody might be a very good Muslim, but he doesn't even know that his actual state, I mean, there are many Muslims that outwardly everything is fine, but there's an inward fiqh and there's an outward fiqh. There are inward rules to the prayer, just like there are, you could do a perfect prayer outwardly. So your fiqh of the zahir is perfect. But your inward fiqh, the khushu' in the prayer, the khashya in the prayer, the tuma'nina in the prayer, the sakina in the prayer, the hudur, the presence of mind in the prayer. You could be thinking about whether the giants won the uh, game yesterday or today or whenever it is. And there's Muslims in the Bay Area that are concerned about that right now. But that might be where the heart is. And where your heart is, that's where you are. So your body might be in prayer, but your heart is in sin. I mean, that's Bani Adam. So you have to look at the level of the person's spiritual evolution in speaking to them and understanding. I mean, I've heard people years ago that got in these big arguments with me and just this and that. And then years later, I met them and they apologized. In fact, that just happened to me recently from somebody. Came up to me and just apologized. Said, I just want to apologize to you. And I said, don't worry about it. You know, it's fine. But where that person was, he couldn't see something that he was able to see later about something that he thought was wrong. But later on, he realized that it wasn't wrong based on his knowledge and his understanding at that stage. And that's something that we all go through. There are things that we think are absolutely wrong and later we learn that they're right or that they were at least possible. That there was room for interpretation. But people that are hasty to judge, that's a sign of spiritual immaturity. Imam anhu said it was said about him that his knowledge was so vast that he rarely saw anybody do anything wrong. Because he would always find, oh, well, that's so-and-so's opinion. Or maybe he's following uh, so-and-so's fatwa. And so traditionally the ulama considered it a sign of immaturity for people that were so hasty to condemn other people. That it was actually a sign of immaturity. And one of the tragedies of the modern Muslim condition is that because of mass education, which is largely secular, people uh, have been introduced into literacy. And that enables them to read books that in previous periods of time they would not have been enabled to read. And one of the things about reading books without suhba is that you take rules without realities. You see, you, you'll take the outward but not the inward with it. And one of the signs traditionally of an autodidact in the Muslim world is that they had a habitual condemnation of others. That was something that the ulama said about Ibn Hazm, for instance, anhu. and I don't want to aghtabu, uh, I, I love Ibn Hazm, and he was a great scholar, and I love his books. But Ibn Hazm was known for really being fierce 
with some of the other scholars attacking them. He was also known for being an autodidact. He was somebody that did not study with shiuch. He had a brilliant intellect and he studied on his own. And there are many scholars in the history of Islam that were like that. They were very brilliant. And the ulama actually debate about whether you can acquire knowledge without a teacher or not. And most of the ulama believe that you can if you have enough brilliance or intelligence, natural gifts that you can, but you will always be deficient in your, what they call tarbiyah. That the person will not have those qualities that are associated with taking knowledge from people who have taken knowledge from people who have taken knowledge back to the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam because there is a certain what's called tahdeeb the Arabs is a beautiful word it's a tahdeeb that goes it's a polishing of the soul that goes with the knowledge because as that scholar that you're studying with he's breaking away ignorance because knowledge is actually already in the soul and what he's doing is he's sculpting what's already in the soul. You cannot acquire anything that wasn't already in you. You see, and that's what knowledge is. Education in Latin means to bring out of, educare. It means to lead out of. You see, allama means that Allah, allama insan, Allah has already imprinted in the human being knowledge. And that is why knowledge in reality is recollection. It's actually memory. And that's why the Qur'an is called dhikr. It's the remembrance. Because what you're doing is you're remembering what was already put in you. But if your heart is so encrusted, there's blockage and you're unable to recollect. It's like a person who lived through an event, but he can't remember. And what will often prevent you from remembering things is trauma. Right? The trauma of the world. So there's people that just, they're unable to study or learn. So, in terms of dealing with Muslims, we have to, the basic premise has to be compassion. We have to have compassion for our brothers and sisters. And we have to recognize that all these ayahs and, and hadith that uh, are brought up about having ghilva and mubtada' and, you know, frowning in the face of the innovator and all of these things. Those hadiths were all related when the ummah was filled with knowledge and they apply to times when people's deviancy is clearly unacceptable. When you have times where nobody knows anymore what the truth is. I mean, our books now are being manipulated. We, last night we were looking at some, I was showing people different, that I have in my own library, different books at different periods, the same book that was printed in 1970, and it has things in it that were taken out of later editions because the publishing house was purchased by a certain sect that didn't want those ideas being disseminated in the ummah. And so people don't even realize that their books are being manipulated. The tradition of Islam is being changed in computers. And things are being blacked out or deleted, just retypeset. So that you read a book and you think you're reading what that author said and people have removed from it. And that's one of the things that Allah says about those who change or alter words from their appropriate places. So people don't even realize that the, the deen is being changed before their very eyes. Although the deen is protected and we believe that. But that does not mean that you can't have dust, what's called a type of uh, treachery 
that has occurred historically, and it occurred even at the time of Imam Sha'arani said that people put things in their book. There are people on the internet that write things about people that have never happened. And then it becomes a lie. And one of the hadiths that's in, in the Sahih, the Prophet ﷺ said that, that there's coming a time when somebody will tell a lie and instantaneously it will reach the corners of the earth. Because fa is harf ta'qib, it's something that happens, it's not ba'da muhla, it's something that happens just after. Ja amrun fazaydun. Like Amr came in and then immediately after Zayd. And the hadith says that a man will speak a lie and he didn't say thumma. He said fa yablughul afaq. It will immediately thereafter be all over the world. And that's one of the things. And one of the things about liars in sharia is you're a liar if you tell something that you have not confirmed its veracity. A lot of Muslims don't know that because they haven't studied the rules of the tongue. Kadhab in the Arabic language is somebody who continually tells lies. It's different from kadhib. And in the hadith literature, a person would be declared a liar if he didn't verify the senad. Not, there's people read the books of hadith now, mustarahat al-hadith, and they say, wakana kadhaban. And they say, oh, he was a liar. And they don't understand that the ulama sometimes meant, it was, he wasn't wadah. He wasn't somebody that fabricated hadith. He was somebody that did not verify the truthfulness of the hadith and would relate it as if it was true. Which is a liar in sharia. So if somebody tells you something about somebody and you go and tell somebody else and it's not true, you are written as a liar. And if you keep doing that, you become a liar with God. Because you can tell a lie in your life, but if you do consistently... You become a liar with Allah, and the liar is the worst of creatures. And the Prophet ﷺ said, "Kafa bin Mar'i, Sharran, and Yuhadita bikulli masamia." It's enough to consider a man evil that he relates everything he hears. And the Quran says, "In da'akum fasiqun bi nabain, fatabayyanu." If people come, if a fasiq comes to you with some news, it says, "Fatabayyanu." you should immediately find out whether that's true or not. And in a riwayah sab'iyah, فَتَثَبَّتُوا So it's not just tabin, it's also tathbeet. Tabin means to find out exactly what is being said, to understand it. Tathabbut means to find out if it's really thabit, if that's really from that person. Because there's things you hear and you don't know what they meant by it. So-and-so said such-and-such. And you don't even know. You have to ask the person, what did you mean? That's what a qali does that. That's what a qali does. Even in the rules of apostasy, the qali has to ask the person, what did you mean? Because he might have meant something completely different. So the rules of being with people before you go out, there's a hadith that says, and it's in the sahih. It's a sahih hadith. It says that if a person drinks wine, you know, he's flogged. If he does it again, he's flogged. If he does it again, he's flogged. On the fourth time, he said, kill him. That hadith, even though it's a sahih hadith, none of the fuqaha accepted that hadith as a ruling. But they leave it in the books because it has a sound senad, but it's not the fiqh of this ummah. It's not the jurisprudence of the sharia. And there are other many hadiths like that. 
The people don't, they think they know. There's a hadith that says, may Allah curse the thief who steals an egg and loses his hand. That's in, in the Sahih, it's in Al-Bukhari. So somebody's got his Muhsin Khan Bukhari, and he reads that, oh, you know, if you steal an egg, you get your hand cut off. Well, that's not, no, none of the fuqaha took that hadith. And that's why Ibn Abdul Barr in the 6th century was complaining of his age, a man who memorized 100,000 hadith by heart and is called Hafid al-Maghrib with all the asanid and has a 30-volume book on Maliki fiqh and another 20-volume book on the Muatta. He said, what a terrible time I'm living in. These people memorize these hadith and they don't study fiqh. So he was already complaining about people that were reading books of hadith thinking they knew what they meant. I mean, there's people that think Ahlul Dhimma are just the Jews and the Christians. And they go around telling people, if you're not a Jew or a Christian, you can't live under Islam. That's not true. That's one opinion. That's not a universal opinion. And it was not the practiced opinion of the ruling powers of Islam. The Ottomans did not do that. The, uh, the Hanafis in uh, India did not do that. And the Malikis certainly did not do that because Imam Malik accepted jizya even from the idol worshiper. And that's learning fiqh. So part of the problem is, is we have people running around that have not studied. And the beauty of the old time and what I was talking about literacy, the problem with literacy is it empowers ignorant people. Right? And they say a little education is a dangerous thing. That's an American proverb. There's another American proverb, beware of the one book man. And that is about fundamentalist Christians who only learn the Bible. It's the only book they'll ever read. And they know it inside out, but it's dangerous when all you know is one book. You can be a very dangerous... That's all the Khawarij knew. The Khawarij knew the Quran. They didn't know the Sunnah. They didn't know other things. They didn't know the books of the Fuqaha. They knew the Qur'an inside out. And they used to quote from the Qur'an. And the thing about the Qur'an, if you, whatever you want to find, it's in there. Sayyidina Ali said, if I lost a camel, I'd find it in the Qur'an. I mean, whatever you want to find, it's in there. And Allah says, He guides many by it, and He leads many astray by the Qur'an. So don't think you can't go astray with this book. Allah is also Al-Mudil. People forget that name. <laughs> you know, people like that name Al-Hadi. <laughs> There's a lot of people, they, they know one name of God, but they don't know another name of God. That name goes with Al-Hadi, Al-Hadi Al-Mudil. People have to be very careful. And the Quran can lead you so far astray, and you're quoting it right into hell. But it said this, <laughs> I mean, Imam al-Qarafi said, if you interpret the Qur'an out of ignorance, he considered it kufr. Just to say what, what you think you know what the Qur'an meant. And so one of the things about modern literacy is, is it enables people to read things that they never would have read before. And part of the thing about studying with a scholar, the, the ulama say, kibar The food of adults is poison for little infants. And knowledge was always seen as tadarruj. That when you first begin studying with a teacher, he takes you through the alif, ba, ta, tha, jim, ha, kha. You learn the alphabet. And then you move on. Now we've got people that have a PhD in engineering, but they haven't gone to kindergarten in Islam. 
and they want to read the PhD books of Islam, and they haven't learned, if you ask them what are the huruf in tajweed, what are the huruf shidda, or what are the huruf lain, or what are the huruf qalqala, and what's a sughra, and what's a kubra, you ask them basic things about recitation of the Quran that a 10-year-old in a madrasa knows, they don't know. And yet they're reading tafsir, they're reading this, they're reading that. So, and this is the type of situation that we find ourselves in. So humility after compassion, having a basic humility about where your level is in the big picture. Because if you don't know what the shaykh said earlier is that there's a bab in al-Bukhari called Bab al-ilmi qabla al-qawli wal-amal. The chapter in Sahih al-Bukhari of learning knowledge before one speaks. And there's people who say, بَلِّغُوا عَنِي وَلَوْ آيَةً But the Prophet ﷺ said, and I heard somebody tell me this. When I was mentioning this, he said, يَا أَخِي The Prophet ﷺ said, teach an ayah even if that's all you know. I said, that's not what it says in the hadith. What, what translation did you read? It says, بَلِّغُوا عَنِي وَلَوْ آيَةً Give news of my message even if it's just an ayah. It doesn't say even if that's all you know. You might quote the wrong ayah. Right? I mean, the Prophet ﷺ, when at Tanukhi, when he called him to Islam, he just talked about paradise. And somebody, when he asked him, why didn't you mention hell? When he read the letter, he said, uh, why wasn't hell mentioned? And he said, Do you mention the night after when you're talking about the day? In other words, when I'm talking about paradise, I'm not going to talk about hell to the person. I'm talking to them about paradise. So there's a time to talk about hell. There's a time to talk about paradise. Because he's Bashir before he's Nadir. He gives good news before he frightens people. But he does have that message as well. In Dar wa Bishara. Now, that's dealing with Muslims with Muslims. Going towards dealing with non-Muslims in terms of First, we were talking about this earlier. One of the basic policies of the Muslim states was that the, they did not have conversion policies. They did not, the Umayyad actually discouraged conversion to Islam. And that is historically documented. They discouraged conversion to Islam. And the way they did it was the Abbasids, who were much more tolerant than the Umayyads, and they dropped the total war policy because the Umayyads had a war policy. I mean, they believed in this idea that it's historical destiny, that Islam has to conquer the entire planet. And they basically destroyed their empire in attempting that. It imploded. I mean, they just expanded too quickly, too far, too fast, and it imploded. And the Abbasids, recognizing the fallacy of that argument, adopted a much more tolerant. And this comes also from the Barmekids, who were Afghanis, who came from an extremely tolerant background, who were the dominant ministers. And they had been Buddhist prior to being Muslim. The Barmekid family was a famous priestly family in Afghanistan. And they adopted a much more tolerant position of dealing with conquered peoples. And that goes all the way up to 1258 with the fall. And the Mughals were initially very barbaric, but became quite civilized. And they also had extremely tolerant policies. The Ottomans topped them all. The Ottomans did not have a conversion policy. They did not in any way proselytize Islam as a state religion. 
Really, they did not. It was not policy to proselytize to non-Muslims. They literally left them. They had, they were called milal and the millet. They left them. They had their own court systems. And this came from the hadith in which the Prophet ﷺ was asked by the Jews to judge between them. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, you know, كيف يحكمونك وفيما التوراة وعندهم التوراة فيها حكم الله How can they come to you and ask you to judge between them? And they have the Torah. And in it is the rule of Allah. So Allah aqarra in the Quran. He actually says that the Jews have their Torah and they should not use the Quran as their source of judgment unless they become Muslim. And for that reason, the Ottomans had courts for the Jews in which the rabbis did their own rulings and the Christians had their own courts. And the Ottomans did not get involved unless it was penal. In the same way that in this country we have what's called people's courts. If people agree on private arbitration, they can actually do that. And that's, that's a good aspect of this country. Whereas with penal, if you get into outside of civil code and into criminal code, then the state takes its authority. And it was similar in the Ottoman Empire. As long as it was civil, it was left to the, the millet to decide their own rulings. And that is, according to some researchers, where the West actually got that. Because Henry Stubbs, who was an expert on Ottoman policies of toleration, was contemporaneous with Hobbes, who introduces the idea of... And Henry Stubbs felt that the toleration of the Ottomans, if the Europeans adopted it, it would solve the problem of religious wars. And then from Hobbes you get Locke, who writes the famous treatise on toleration, which becomes the pillar of American freedom of religion. Because America has probably the first freedom of religious act, which is from the 17th century in Maryland, is quite radical. Although it's very consistent with the Ottoman tradition. And then obviously the founding fathers were very wary of having any state religion and they felt that all religions, including Islam, and they mention it, Thomas Jefferson mentions it very clearly, that Muslims should have the right to worship. And John Adams says that not only should they have the right to worship, but we should prevent religious tests in order to prevent other religions from actually being in public office. So this is part of the early American history. So where then did the spread of Islam come? It usually came from individuals, the people that are called the muhsinin and particularly from people that were associated with what were later termed the Sufiya. Uh, these people had probably, and there's a book called The Role of the Sufis in the Spread of Islam. Anybody who's from the Indian subcontinent or Pakistan knows that the spread of Islam is directly related to famous awliya, they call them awliya, who came into that country and just by their presence and by their spiritual states, many, many people became Muslim. And this is also true, like Bosnia. It's very well known that the Ottomans did not have a policy on the Bosnians, and it was the Qadri Sufi order and the Beshti Sufi order that went up into the mountains and began to call these people to Islam because they were always very active in proselytizing Islam. Now, one of the things about the people of Tasawwuf, traditionally, in the Muslim world, is that, that they were known for their tolerance. They're people that were less condemnatory, less judgmental, which is obviously why they were very successful in calling other people to Islam. Uh, I'll give you an example. Habib Omar bin Mahfouz, who's a Yemeni scholar, 
and uh, has a madrasa in Tirim. An American was studying with him, and he said, if you want to call people in America to Islam, then it's based upon a condition that whoever you talk to, you see them as better than you. And he said, and the reason for that is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَمَا كُنَّ We do not punish people until we send them a messenger. And so those people who have not heard the message of Islam have an excuse with their Lord for whatever they're doing. Whereas any of your disobedience, you have no excuse. And so that is a different way of looking. Instead of looking at people with contempt, you actually look at them with compassion. Instead of seeing them as your enemies, you see them as your potential friends and brothers. And that's what the Qur'an says, عَسَى اللَّهُ أَنْ يَجْعَلَ بَيْنَكُ وَبَيْنَ الَّذِينَ عَدَيْتُمْ مِنْهُمْ مَوَدَّةِ وَاللَّهُ قَدِيرٌ وَاللَّهُ غَفُورٌ رَحِيمٌ Perhaps God will put between those that you now feel animosity or enmity towards, put between you and them love. And Allah is all-powerful. And Allah is forgiving and merciful. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when He said to the Prophet, لَيْسَ لَكَ مِنَ الْأَمْرِ You have nothing to do with this. If Allah wants to guide them or forgive them, that's his business. In other words, the people that were treating him the worst at that time. Because what he, when he saw his uncle Hamza mutilated, he swore an oath that he would mutilate 70 people from amongst them because he was a messenger of God, but he was also a human being. And even though we believe that he was masoom, his nature is impeccable. He was a human being and he felt things very strongly. He wept. When he saw suffering, it caused him to move inside. He wept tears when he saw pain. He visited a sick man once. And because the man was suffering, he began to weep. And when the Sahaba saw, When they saw his weeping, they all began to weep. And that was from visiting a sick man. So he was a human being. When he saw his uncle, who he knew who his uncle was, Hamza, Sayyid al-Shuhada, had been mutilated on the battlefield, he said, Wallahi la minhum. Allah said, you have nothing to do with this. If Allah wants, He'll guide them. And He did. He guided both of them, Hind and Wahshi. The two people that did that to his uncle, He guided them and the Prophet took shahada from them and sat with them. After swearing an oath, He would mutilate 70. See, because it's not, that's not your business. And if you have that hatred or animosity in your heart, you're missing something very important about Allah's creation. So, looking at people with compassion, recognizing, and I'll tell you another very interesting thing, a lot of Muslims don't know this. I believe it, it's the opinion that makes most sense to me, and because it's from an imam and a mushtahid, it's a valid opinion. It's the opinion of Imam al-Ghazali in Faisal al-Tafriqah, which is a book he wrote. He categorizes non-Muslims into three categories and places two of them in paradise. So you think about that. He says that non-Muslims fall into three categories. The first category are those who live under the justice of Islam and see the beauty of Islam and see the truth of Islam and reject it. And he said those people are for the hell. Or they live uh, near the lands of Islam and know the benefit of Islam. Because in those days, Hungarians used to flee Christian rule to live in the Ottoman Empire. Hungarian Christians, and this is all documented because there were no taxes, because they were treated, there was upward mobility, which did not exist in the Muslim world. Some of the greatest Ottoman 
sailors were not Turks, they were Greeks that fled the Greek navies because there was an upward mobility in the Ottoman navy. You could actually move up in the Greek navy if you were a or if you were a, a man that just rode the oars, that was your life. Because only aristocrats got into positions of authority. In the Ottoman Empire, it was a meritocracy. So if you showed that you had leadership qualities, if you showed that you had ability, you were upwardly mobile. Murad Ra'is is a Scottish man who became an admiral in the Ottoman Empire. He was a Scottish man. He's what they call renegados because in Britain, a lot of the Scots and the Irish, they used to, because there was no upward mobility in England, if you weren't born into a, the sacred caste of the Brahmins, if you were a Shudra, you know, stuck of being an untouchable, right, the Dalits, I mean, that was it. That's the way most of the world was. If you were born into a, you know, a bricklayer's house, you were a bricklayer whether you liked it or not. Irrespective of your abilities, and that brilliant people are born, are sons of bricklayers. Allah puts genius in, in, in very strange places. So in a meritocracy, you're allowed to be upwardly mobile, which is often what the Ottoman Empire was. So the second category are people who live far away from the lands of Islam and have never heard anything about Islam. And that's the dominant Maturidi and Ash'ari opinion about those people. They're Ahl al-Fatra. They have the same hukum as the people between messengers, like the Arabs before Islam. That's the dominant opinion. There are other opinions, but that's the dominant opinion. And because Ibn Rushd says, when you're talking about the Rahmah of Allah, always try to expand it. Don't try to constrict it. He said, it's the nature of Rahmah. He said, the womb, right, expands. Doesn't contract. It expands in order to accommodate the growth of the fetus. See, we want to contract it. That's called abortion. So that's the nature of rahmat. It expands to accommodate. And, and that is why the Muslims always, because they know what hell is. A lot of people don't know what hell is. And that's why there's so many people that are so quick to put people in hell. Because if you knew what it was, you wouldn't want your worst enemy to go to hell. If you knew what it was. But there are people who don't know what it is. So they just want to send everybody there. The guy that raised his rent. You know, go to hell. The second category of people that never heard of it. The third category are people that have been taught since they were little that there was an imposter in the Arabian Peninsula named Muhammad ibn Abdullah. And he lied and, and claimed he was a prophet. And they're all terrorists. And they're this and they're that. And that's what they've heard. Imam al-Ghazali said, these people have blocks to the truth because they were already indoctrinated. And we know the power of this in, in modern psychology. You see, the power of what happens when you're a child. When the Prophet emerged in the Arabian Peninsula, those people actually had the opposite. They only had positive opinions of him. The Quraysh only knew good from him. If you go to a people and all you hear since you're little is that this is a lie, like Maronite Christians are taught, taught since they're little children, you know, that this is an evil religion, it's an evil man, it's an evil, and many Jewish people grow up with that as well, that Islam is bad, Islam is this or that. So that creates blockages from the truth. And Imam al-Ghazali said that he felt that that, because it was presented to them in a distorted fashion, they would not be held account for it. And he said, I hope that. Arju darika. You know, in other words, that 
that to him seem most consistent with divine justice. So when you look at people out there, you know, you should look with the eye of mercy. I mean, that's how if you want to be effective. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يَغْفِرُ أَنْ يُشْرَكَ بِهِ وَيَغْفِرُ مَا دُونَ ذَلِكَ لِمَنْ يَشَاءُ God does not forget that you associate with him. He forgives whatever he wants after that. Whatever he wants. And that's an important verse to remember. Now, the other thing important to remember is according to our dominant theologians, shirk that is a, that you are taken to account for is shirk that has been made clear to you. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَلَا تَجْعَلُوا لِلَّهِ أَنْدَادًا وَأَنْتُمْ تَعْلَمُونَ don't associate with God once you know. And that's why when a man came to the Prophet ﷺ, he said, MashaAllah wa shi'ta ya Rasulullah. In Ibn Majah, and it's also in Tabrani, he said, MashaAllah wa shi'ta ya Rasulullah. Allah willed and you willed. Now, technically that's like shirk, but the Prophet didn't say, Anta kafir, anta mushrik. He said, Qul, MashaAllah, thumma sha'a Muhammad. Allah willed and then Muhammad willed. You see, he taught him how to remove that dangerous wow and atifa there. Because it's for musharaka, it puts them at the same level. So that's something very important for people to recognize. That, and, and it is haram in sharia. According to Qadi Abu Bakr ibn al-Arabi in Ahkam al-Quran, he said it is prohibited to make dua against any specific individual. Because you don't know their khatima. Whereas you can make dua against enemies that are attacking Muslims, it's permissible to Allahumma ahzim jiyushahum, Allahumma afsid ra'yahum, Allahumma khayyib sa'yahum. I mean, the Prophet ﷺ made dua for people to lose battles and things like that. Because they were uh, persecuting. What fitnah to akbaru min al-qatri. Persecution is worse than killing. Ashaddu min al-qatri. So making dua against individuals specifically is not something that you should do. And the few hadith in which the Prophet specifically mentioned individuals is from his khasais. It's considered to be unique to the Prophet ﷺ because he knew some people he was told. And there's a hadith in the Jariya, one of the girls was singing, وَفِينَا نَبِيٌّ يَعْلُمُ مَا فِي غَدْ We have a Prophet who knows what's going to happen tomorrow. And the Prophet ﷺ said, don't say that, just say what you were saying before. Because she said, and we have a prophet that knows what happens tomorrow. So the prophet didn't say, Anta mushrika, haram alayki. And, I mean, we've got all these Muslims out there that are ready to turn 90% of the Muslims into mushrikeen. Like the man, this American man became Muslim with this man from a certain city in a certain Muslim country. And he said, you know, brother, the religion is good advice and I have to tell you, all the Muslims are going to hell except the ones from my country. And then he said, and even in my country, all the Westerners are going to hell. It's just the Easterners that are going to heaven. He said, even in the Eastern province, they're all going to hell too, except my city. <laughs> he said, even in my city, we have all these people that came from other countries, ruined people's understanding. They're all going to hell too. He said, it's just my mosque. It's called Masjid Sabr. <laughs> they're the only ones going to heaven. And even in that mosque, unfortunately, it's just me and the imam. <laughs> and I have to warn you, I'm worried about the imam. Assalamu <laughs> alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhum.